Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. We're going to read through the text. We're going to talk about the text, make sure we understand what's happening here before we then begin to apply it specifically to our, our lives. So that's a bit of a blueprint for this morning's message. Verse 35, we're told on the same day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, that's the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took Jesus along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But Jesus, we're told, was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So Jesus arose rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But Jesus said to them, the disciples, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? But they feared exceedingly. They said to one another, Who can this be, that even the wind in the sea, obey him. Mark begins this particular story, letting us know when evening had come. For context, Jesus has just spent a long day ministering to the multitudes, preaching, performing miracles, working, affecting the lives of the people, sensing that it was time to push into new areas, which was a total normal occurrence for Jesus. As he's ministering to the multitudes, he tells the boys, go ahead and prep the boat for us to set sail tonight. He tells the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Jesus telling them that when he wraps things up, he wants a quick exit. Get the boat ready. I'm going to finish the ministry. Then we'll jump in. And over the course of tonight, we're going to make our way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Understand, the Sea of Galilee is not a very big body of water. The Sea of Galilee is seven miles um, in width, 14 miles in length. It's really actually one of the more shocking aspects of a trip to Israel. You stand on the shore there in Galilee, and you look, and you can see across, you can see the width. It's not a big body of water. It's fairly small. For a group of experienced seamen, and keep in mind, many of the disciples were fishermen. They had grown up on this body of water, spent their lives fishing, had experienced all of the nuances. They knew how to navigate the waters. They knew how to make their way across the other side. They were nautical and expertise. This should have only taken a few hours. Well, Mark says that when they had left the multitudes, they load up, they set sail, they shove off, but Mark kind of gives us a very weird, strange, odd detail here. I don't know if you noticed it, but we're told they took Jesus along in the boat. Now, I don't think Mark includes this detail to ensure that we know that the disciples in their franticness to get to the other side forget to bring Jesus there they are, they shove off, and Jesus is on the shore like, yo, fellas, 
You forgot me. I don't think the detail is included here to let us know they took Jesus, they didn't forget him. Instead, I'm convinced that Mark includes this type of a detail to provide a little insight, a glimpse into the attitude of the disciples as they boarded this boat, as they set upon their journey. Keep in mind, right? Jesus' initial command, it was simple. Let us, it's plural, us cross over. No, Jesus didn't say. It wasn't as though he called the boys. He says, yo, I want you to take me to the other side. You get it ready. You're going to be my chauffeur. This is like Uber for the Sea of Galilee. That's not what's happening. He's not issuing a command. Take me someplace. He's very clear. Let us go. You get it ready, but let us make the journey together. Now, because Jesus was admittedly a greenhorn. I mean, Jesus was not nautical. He was a carpenter by trade, not a fisherman. Lived in Nazareth, grew up in Nazareth. So instead of allowing Jesus to help, what do the disciples do? They took Jesus along. Let us go, but come on. It's almost as though they're like, Jesus, let's make this journey, but you sit back and just stay out of the way. Like, and I love the fact Jesus didn't argue with them, did he? Put up no resistance. Matter of fact, he took the opportunity for a little R&R. Mark says that Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Note this phrase, a pillow, should be better translated with the definitive article, the pillow. There's emphasis here. The idea isn't that they had this big cushy pillow that Jesus kind of lays down on as though, you know, they, they, they bought one of those doggy pillows and they threw it in the front. It just was a good place to, to kick back. The idea presented here is that Jesus was asleep in whatever was best called kind of the captain's quarters. Not a big boat, but a place the captain would often sleep. Now imagine this scene, right? It's been a long day filled with all types of activities, a day filled with ministry. It's now night. As Jesus and the disciples are making their way across a darkened Sea of Galilee, illuminated only by the moon, whatever stars happen to be out, Jesus is fast asleep. The disciples are manning the boat. All seems well. Now, alarmingly, while they had embarked on calm waters, our text tells us things quickly, dramatically take a turn for the worse. We're told a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already filling with water. It's been said the Sea of Galilee, while being nothing more than a fairly small lake, it gets its name because it's a lake known to behave much like a sea. The Sea of Galilee is located approximately 600 feet below sea level. It's surrounded almost completely by mountains, which means that it wasn't an uncommon thing. For these type of violent storms, unpredictable storms, to swoop down unexpectedly. You had the cold air coming off the mountains, the warmer air emanating off of the water, this concoction mixing together, low pressure zones. They've been known even today to cause swells on the Sea of Galilee, rising in upwards of six feet. You can surf 
on swells of six feet. I think it's safe to say, at least to assume, that experienced fishermen, much like Peter, James, John, Andrew, would have been, knowing that they had probably navigated their fair share of storms, they had sensed, I'm sure, at some juncture, that things were beginning to turn. They could feel it in their skin and their bones. They could see clouds forming. They knew that they were potentially in trouble, sensing the danger before it arrived. As our story though unfolds, it becomes evident that while they had probably navigated their own fair share of storms, they knew very quickly on that what was happening here on the Sea of Galilee was not your typical Galilean storm. Something was different, something unique. As a matter of fact, things become so dire so quickly, the boat is filling with water and they're in danger of sinking. Matthew's account of the same story recorded in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, indicates that this storm was produced by more than simply as Mark tells us, a great windstorm. Matthew writes that suddenly there was a great tempest. This word tempest in the Greek is seismos, from which we get our word seismic. The word denotes, it literally means a violent shaking coming up from below. Every other place in the New Testament that you find this Greek word seismos Uh, in the Bible, it's translated actually as earthquake. The idea is that the winds from above stirred the sea below and a great earthquake rattled the seas from beneath. It was not a good situation. Indeed, this was a very great storm. Now, don't get me wrong. And don't forget that while all of this is happening, what is Jesus doing? He is sound asleep. He's sawing logs. He's snoozing, snoring. Here are the disciples, bailing water, pulling down the mast, paddling with all their right, and there's Jesus. (laughs) Snoring away. Sound asleep. Now, the text it implies that there's something happening under the text. That that the disciples, while we know Jesus is sleeping, that they think that Jesus is faking it with the intention of, you know, teaching them some greater lesson. Let me give you some evidence for this. Look at their exchange again. Mark says, they awoke Jesus and said to him, So this is what they say that awoken Jesus. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, if the disciples really believed that Jesus was asleep, therefore he was unaware of what was happening, their reaction would have been a little different, wouldn't it? The reaction, the question would have been, Jesus, wake up, we need your help. The boat's in danger of sinking. It would have been informative, the question, right? We know you're unaware of what's happening. You're sound asleep. We're in a nightmare. No, the question, though, assumes they already, that Jesus is already aware. They're questioning right from the bat whether or not Jesus 
had a heart for them. The question in the midst of this storm indicates that they believed that Jesus knew what was happening and yet was still making a decision to do nothing to help them out. Do you not care that we are perishing? Their accusation questioned why Jesus was still not helping by assuming he knew the situation had grown to a point of desperation. And notice what happens next. In response to their question, aimed at challenging Jesus' inaction, the fact that he's still on the sidelines, we read that what does Jesus do? He wakes up. He doesn't address the disciples. He gets up, rubs the sleep out of his eyes, looks around, he rebukes the wind, turn it down. And then he looks at the sea, he says, peace, be still. This, this phrase, be still, it literally means be muzzled and stay muzzled. And then, and what had to have been a radical moment, what happens? The wind ceased and there was great calm. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Now try to get into the scene. Does Jesus care about the storm? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Does he feel threatened by the storm? There's no indication in our text he feels threatened by the storm. Is Jesus fearful the boat's going to sink? Came to save the world of sin, this daggum storm, put an end to it. I know I'm the God of the universe, but you know, bloop, 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 bloop. now we're all in trouble. No. Now, is there any aspect of what's happening here? And please be honest with yourself. Any aspect of this story that's actually out of Jesus's control? Any part? Any parcel? No. Like it becomes abundantly clear that this storm, while it had consumed these disciples, for Jesus was a total afterthought. Like the disciples are freaking out. They're frantic. Wake up, Jesus. Do you not care that we're perishing? At which point, Jesus, he rebukes the storm, almost as if it's kind of a, a nuisance. Why? So that then he can address these panic-stricken disciples without distraction. It's almost like he doesn't care about the wind. He doesn't care about the seas. He cares about the disciples. But to deal with the disciples, he's got to deal with this other stuff first. So he's like, shut up, be muzzled, be still. And then he turns to them and he asks them, why are you fearful? <laughs> That's funny to me. Like really, if you're in the scene, that should be comedy. The disciples, they're rowing, it's frantic, they're sweating, the storm, the wind, it's howling, they run in, Jesus, we're gonna die, you should do something. Jesus jumps up and he looks around, shut up. Now, what is freaking you guys out? And there's no wind and the sea is calm. Like, <laughs> if you're the disciples, what can you possibly say in that moment? Um, it's like, why did you just wake me up? Well, there, there, <clears throat> there was, as you could tell, a storm. 
and um, and we were a bit freaked out by it, and we really thought that we were going down, but that all seems pretty ridiculous at the moment. You see what I'm saying? Like, the very storm that had caused them to question whether or not Jesus cared about them, and that moment when he says, why are you freaking out? It no longer existed. It was a non-issue. I could see Jesus standing in the middle of this boat on a calm sea, illuminated by nothing than the moon, the stars, looking around at this group of men who are waterlogged, frazzled, completely exhausted, as he then asked the question, why are you so fearful? What's scaring you? Their fear of a storm at that moment seemed ridiculous. Now understand, the storm here, the storm, it was never the issue. The issue wasn't even the disciples' fear of the storm, and that's important to note. Like, the issue is not that they were afraid of the storm. Being afraid of life-threatening situations is only a natural human reaction. The issue, as we'll see in a moment, was that their fear of this storm revealed their lack of faith in Jesus. That's why he then asked them, right? Why are you so fearful? And then he follows it up with, how is it that you have no faith? You know, when it's all said and done, it's important we realize two critical points concerning storms that you realize two critical points concerning storms. And the first one, I'm not, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Storms happen. It's life. They exist. They've happened in your past. They might be happening in your present. I promise they'll happen in your future. Storms will happen. But the other thing I can say is that storms have a purpose. Let's look at each of these two points to begin with it would be helpful that you understand within Scripture, as really within all other forms of literature, there is a correlation that exists between the natural world and a spiritual world. We find this in literature. We find it in the Bible. Situations, right, where natural occurrences present a picture of a spiritual occurrence. Storms are no exception. Storms represent, in the Bible, difficult times or even a stretching set of circumstances. Uh, additionally, Scripture seems to indicate that not all storms, all the storms you and I face, arise for the same reason or with the same divine purpose. In the Bible, you will find two different types of storms. There are storms of disobedience. These are storms of your own making. Situations that God allows into your life with the express purpose of correction. Storms of disobedience are self-made, often caused by a person's sin, your rebellion, or simply your poor choices. There are situations and storms, tough things you face. You really can blame no one but the person you see every morning in the mirror. And that's not your wife, that's you. You can only blame yourself. Like you can never say, man, God. 
you got to really pray for me, man. I'm in this storm being persecuted for Jesus. Well, why? Well, I, I, I got a VD. You got a, a venereal disease? And you're going to, that wait, that, what? No, that's because you were in rebellion. That's not, that's your fault. That's not persecution. I'm being persecuted for Jesus because I got kicked out of school. No, you got kicked out of school because you're a moron who couldn't keep up with his grades and got distracted by other things. Don't blame God on that. Like, it, that was not a you and Jesus versus the world type of thing, sleeping in every morning and missing class. There are storms of disobedience, bad things that arise, and we have to own it. God allows them, but for correction. But there are other types of storms, a different kind. Storms of obedience, not disobedience, which are storms, honestly, not of your own making. Situations that God allows into your life, no fault of your own, they just stirred up. They came off the mountain. They hit you when you were least expecting. And their purpose is for perfection, not correction. These storms don't originate as a byproduct or consequence of anything that you've done or anything you haven't done. They are out of your control and arise without warning. These type of storms, storms of obedience, they occur naturally. Jonah, great picture of a man facing a storm of disobedience, right? Rebelling against God, going against God's word. God said go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction. There's a storm that kicks up, right? It's a storm of disobedience. He gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a whale, taken to where he should be. Couldn't blame anyone but himself. But storms of obedience are totally different. They occur naturally, sometimes being nothing more than just living in a fallen, sinful, broken world. As our church family knows all too well, these type of storms arise. They happen. It can be a cancer diagnosis out of the blue or a nagging illness, the declining health of loved ones. That can be a storm. Wayward children, the struggle to find employment, the disappointment of a breakup, on and on and on and on. We all know what these storms are like, don't we? It should be pointed out that aside from these storms arising naturally, there are occasions when these storms can be of demonic origin. A biblical example of this would be Job. Job was a righteous man, and yet he faced quite a storm, a demonic storm, demonic forces. You know, the Bible often refers to these types of storms, storms of obedience, as being trials. Most famously in James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, we're provided this daunting expectation, this exhortation, right? My brethren, count it joy. All right, I'm ready for this. What? When you fall into various trials. Talk about a Debbie Downer. Count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfected and complete, lacking another, nothing. Count it all joy when 
you fall. When, not if, not on the rare occasion, possibly. When, and you know what? They're not a jump, it's a fall. Nobody plans a fall. You're not ready for it, you look stupid, it comes up unexpectedly, you trip and you stumble. It just happens. And when that does, kind of joy. Because there's a purpose and a plan. With all of this in mind, we can reason that the storm these disciples were facing this night on the Sea of Galilee was not a storm of disobedience, was it? It was instead a storm of obedience. The text is clear. Why did they get in the boat? Why did they set sail? Why were they going to the other side? Was it their personal motivations, their own whims? No. Jesus had commanded them to do all of these things. These disciples were in a storm for one reason. They were being obedient to Jesus. And it was then in the midst of their obedience that they found themselves facing a storm that they had never expected. You know, there's an important point that, that should be made. This story illustrates that some storms happen contrary to what I would just call heretics. There are some storms that happen in your, happens in your life and you did nothing wrong. You did nothing to cause it. You did nothing to deserve it. It's not your fault. Like there are some threads within a fallen, broken type of Christianity that would point to that as evidence of some sin, evidence of the judgment of God. Christian karma, as I've referred to it often. But that's not the case. This story tells us there are some storms that Jesus leads us to of obedience. You know, sometimes storms, storms of life just happen. There's no rhyme. You can consider a reason. It's almost like you're in a boat totally subjective and in submission to the natural world around you. That at that point doesn't really like you because the wind is causing a disorientation and the clouds have caused a darkness. You don't know right from left, up from down. The waves are crashing in. You're getting beaten down from every side. Have you ever felt this way by life? You know, I think it's, it's, it's easier if I were to be honest for a moment, which is a weird phrase because that implies I wasn't honest before. But frankly, which also is insulting to Frank, I don't have the right re... I found that it's easier to endure a storm of disobedience. Have you ever, have you kind of... You, you know, it's a storm of my own making, which means I can see it coming, forwards me the opportunity to hunker down. Oh, this is going to be bad. I have myself to blame. Because, it, because I have myself to blame, because I created it, I have the answer to the why question. I know why it's happening. It's because I'm an idiot. I messed up. The storm is the inevitable consequence of my actions. I can rationalize it. It's logical. So I can deal. But in contrast, I think that this is what makes storms of obedience so difficult, right? Th these are, are sudden storms. You can't prepare for them. On top of that, you can't get a bearing. They just swoop in. Additionally, because you're not the cause of the storm, what's the big question? Why? 
Why me? Why this? Why now? In many instances, just like these disciples, right? These storms leave me asking why God would allow the storm to begin with. What do they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, do you not care? Do you not care about me? Why would you be allowing this? You know, it's a tough pill to swallow, but I'll give it to you straight. The why these storms happen, answer. Though very complex in the specifics, it is rather simple, at least in the generalities. And and I don't mean to to be insensitive, but it's just the truth, and I'm going to give it to you. There is no doubt, while these storms are difficult and can be incredibly painful, Storms of obedience are allowed by God because they serve an important function in your life that you would not be able to have otherwise. That they teach you things and lessons that you can only learn by going through things like this. My dad has a plaque in his office that's to mature, sometimes you have to go through the manure. And it's true that there are things in life that God allows because God wants to teach us. He wants to work things in us that wouldn't be worked through otherwise, that storms of obedience are allowed by God because they serve an important purpose for me, a divine purpose. Every storm you face in this life, including the one you're in, please always know there is a divine purpose. Notice the first thing that this storm accomplished. This storm stripped away these disciples' self-reliance, doesn't it? Like Jesus had given them a command. Let us cross over to the other side. While Jesus was asleep, he was asleep. Why? It wasn't because he wasn't willing to help. Selling was a team effort. Jesus was asleep because these men weren't allowing him to help. They thought they had it. We've noted this. He had given them a command. They wanted to set sail without his involvement. They wanted to obey his command in their own strength. They wanted to engage the journey and reach the destination without his intervention, without his involvement. And to be fair, I don't think it was malicious. I just think they didn't believe they needed his help. That the task at hand was right down their alley. This was a lake they grew up on, a sea they were familiar with. They were boatsmen. Getting from point A to point B, Jesus gave the command, but I don't need your help. Just just sit back, relax, chill. I got this. Of all the things, I got this one. At what point in the storm do these disciples finally break down and ask for Jesus' help? Was it at the early signs a big storm was brewing? Was it at the point they realized this storm was unlike anything they had ever encountered? Was it at the point they were beginning to take on water and sink? You see, these resolute men didn't cry out for his help until they had reached the absolute breaking point. The waves were beating into the boat so that it was already filling. Matthew adds that the boat was literally covered with waves. Luke's account of the same story is a little more blunt. He simply says at this point, these men were, quote, in jeopardy. Understand, Jesus allows storms of obedience into our lives to remind us of a fact, a reality we're so quickly to forget. That self 
is completely inadequate and unable to obey any of his commands. We can't do it. Sometimes we think we can, and then a storm reminds us we can't. These men thought they didn't need Jesus to make it to the other side, but the storm illustrated the fact they couldn't make it anywhere without his direct involvement. Jesus allowed this storm to push them to the brink of what they thought they could handle on their own strength. He allowed them to experience the overwhelming might of a storm, not to destroy them. Jesus was never afraid of that. But to force these men to come to a point where they would rely on him anew in their time of need. You see, when it was all said and done, this storm was designed and resulted, mind you, in deepening their faith in and dependency on Jesus. Don't forget Everything began with a command of Jesus. But don't, don't forget this. That command also included a promise. A command of Jesus and a promise from Jesus given before they ever got into the water. Jesus says, let us cross over to the other side. Clearly, unbelief had caused them to doubt this promise in the midst of their storm which happens all the time, doesn't it? Jesus commanded them to board a boat, set sail, cross the Sea of Galilee, knowing a storm was brewing. And yet, he didn't do this to destroy them. He knew they'd make it to the other side, but not before learning and being reminded of a valuable lesson. The command, cross the sea. You would have thought, that seeing Jesus' miraculous power being demonstrated in situation after situation after situation in the lives of person after person after person would have created an incredible faith in these disciples, right? They had seen lame people walk, lepers healed. What they had witnessed with their own eyes at this point, you would have thought in the midst of their storm, they're like, it's all good, Jesus, he's asleep, but we ain't going down. It's a storm, whatever. Hey, Jesus, can you, can you do something about it? You should have helped us to begin with. We got it. Let's roll. No. Like, they should have understood these things. That they could trust that Jesus wouldn't fail them. But the storm, it shakes their confidence, doesn't it? So quickly they forget the lessons that they had learned. Often it's in the midst of our storms that it's easy to reach the conclusion that the light at the end of the tunnel might just be a train coming to finish us off. How quickly we get pessimistic. Consider that the disciples' lapse of faith really began with a lack of faith concerning God's word and his promise. We see this in the manner the disciples approached Jesus. Men in a storm of obedience having their reliance in Jesus already stripped away. They're already at the breaking point. But what do they come in the point of desperation and despair? What do they cry out? Teacher, do you care? Do you care about me? They question his heart, that he cared. You know, we, we I don't know if you're like me. Haven't you prayed similar prayers? Maybe you're not like me. Maybe I'm just 
way down the totem pole. But my goodness, there have been times where those same words have come out of my mouth. Even seeing the cross in hindsight, I've come to my knees and questioned whether or not God has loved me. And of course Jesus cared. Some might say that their protest began when they concluded that Jesus' inaction revealed his indifference. But I believe that their protest ran much deeper than that. I think the disciples were upset because as they tried to endure this incredible storm, they believed Jesus was intentionally sitting on the sidelines. As many do, they had, in, they had interpreted Jesus' inaction as indifference. But that's not a fair criticism, right? Why was Jesus on the sideline? Why? Because he didn't want to help? No. Because they didn't think they needed his help. You know, what blows my mind about this passage is it's, and I was thinking about this this morning, it's the only time we're given record of Jesus sleeping. Now, of course he slept every night. Kind of like you watch 24 and you wonder when Jack Bauer eats or goes to the bathroom. Clearly, it's during the commercial breaks. But this is the only time that we're given a reference of Jesus sleeping. And why is he asleep? Is it because he didn't care? That's because the disciples didn't think they needed him. And he honored that. But they're concluding that his inaction was indifference, but it wasn't. Because Jesus wanted to be called into the action. He was just waiting to be asked. You see, storms of obedience challenge our faith. They strip away our self-reliance so that we will, in a new sense, rely and place our dependency on him. We'll sink if Jesus won't intervene. Jesus wasn't stirred, wasn't stirred to act by the howling wind, wasn't awoken by the rocking waves, The deafening crash of thunder, the brilliant flashes of lightning had no effect on a sleeping Jesus, does it? But what was the one thing that he did wake up for? The cries of his disciples to help. Even when they were questioning his goodness, boom, he jumps up and he says, peace, be still. The same word, that led them into the storm, possessed power over the storm. And never forget that. I think it's important to point out, just on an aside, that that while Jesus in this situation, boom, the storm ended, right then and there. It's not how he always works. And this storm, that is, and your storm, maybe not. There's no promise that following Jesus will make life easier or without storms. The key though, is that you won't be alone to face them. That Jesus will walk with you and his spirit will reside in you. That he will give you everything you need to endure. The promise of scripture is never escape, but endurance. And yet, what is critical you take away from this story concerning a storm of obedience, is that if you cry out to Jesus, He is not only able to fulfill his promise to get you to the other side,
but his word will carry with it the exact same supernatural results in your heart as it did on that sea that night. That he can give you peace and he can fill your heart with calm. The Bible calls it a peace that would surpass even our ability to understand it. That in the midst of war and storms and battle, where everything is crashing down around us, that there is something supernatural happening in my heart by God's word and through his promises and his spirit where I can step back and say, you know what? I can endure. That I can walk with him and endure. Friends, storms happen. They are an unavoidable part of life, and yet there is a purpose in these storms. They can deepen your faith and your dependency in Jesus. Never forget, Jesus doesn't leave you to face storms alone. He's always with you. Jesus has the power over the storms you face. So why are you relying on yourself and not in him? And finally, Jesus' word is always able to provide peace in the midst of your storm. So why don't you find rest in him? In conclusion, we're told following the events of this day. Look at it again. We're told they feared exceedingly and they said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Please realize storms provide Jesus a chance to demonstrate his power in and through your life in the most relevant radical ways. Understand There is no more radical testimony to the power of Jesus and his word than a believer walking at peace in the midst of a storm. To speak personally, I am inspired. My faith in Jesus grows and is deepened by watching some of you and how you handle your storm. Not to point people out specifically, but we all know. Watching how you have handled your storm and how you have relied on Jesus and how you have walked in the spirit and how in tears and at the point of breaking, you come to him anew on Sunday morning. That is real and radical and there's nothing in this world that can provide that. Who can this be? that can do that in the heart of someone. I can tell you who it is. It's Jesus. And only one, his name is Jesus. The interesting thing about storms, everyone faces them. Doesn't matter your economic status, you vote D or R or independent. Doesn't matter you're black, white, if you're an American or otherwise, everyone faces storms. If you're on planet earth, they're inevitable. It doesn't even matter if you believe in God or not. You'll still face storms, life storms, which come in a myriad of various forms. They are on your horizon, friend. The question you should ask yourself is this. Do you want to face your storm alone? Because you don't have to. And two, do you want to chalk up your storm as being meaningless? 
and random? Or do you want to see within it a silver lining of purpose? It's one or the other. Though one can question the manner in which these disciples came to Jesus in the heat of the moment, don't miss the biggest point of all. In the middle of their storm, they doubted, they had unbelief, they questioned Jesus' goodness. But what did they do? They came to Jesus. And did Jesus rebuke them for questioning his goodness? No, he asked them about faith. But they came. These men cried out in desperation. Jesus' ears perked up. Didn't care about the storm, but he cared about his disciple, the child of God. And what does Jesus do? He acted. He worked. Now, in this instance, he stopped the storm. And yours, that might not be, but he will act nonetheless. How? His word will speak into your heart with power to do what? To fill you with peace and a calm. That he's, un, he's in control. He's got this. I don't need to doubt. It might not end here. It might end when I breathe my last, but it will be over. And there will be heaven. Please know this morning, if you're in the midst of a storm, that Jesus cares so deeply about you. And he's more than willing to help. Maybe, just maybe, the only thing Jesus is waiting for, the only reason it seems as though he's asleep, the only reason he's on the sidelines is because he's just waiting for you to come to the point that you'll ask him to help. This morning, will you come to Jesus?